our text for this morning, the fifth Sunday in the season of Epiphany, comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. Listen now for God's word to you. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they'd done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all who were there with him were amazed at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. When they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. One of the hallmarks of every Sunday school on the planet is singing. We sing here at Fifth Avenue. Dr. Eugenia Yao leads our children in songs before they disperse to classrooms or Zoom rooms. Way back when I was in Sunday school, the same was true, and one of my favorite songs arose out of today's text. Based on the King James Version of the Bible, the song went like this. I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. It was not the height of Christian hymnody. <laughs> but I liked it, especially the hand motions, which involved casting a line into imaginary water with a fishing rod and then reeling in a convert to the faith. <laughs> At the time, the pastor in our small Presbyterian church in central Minnesota 
often talked about our responsibility to win people for Jesus. Even youth, he emphasized, ought to be involved in fishing for people, urging people to participate in Christian community in the hope that, that there they might encounter good news, salvation, and maybe God. Over the years, I've thought a lot about today's text and the way the faithful have used it to define evangelism. And generally, the logic goes something like this. Those of us who already belong to churches, who are part of Christian communities, are supposed to fish for additional souls. After all, Jesus told the first disciples, from now on, you will catch people. When I was in seminary, my friends and I talked extensively about the things that draw people to church. One of my professors was famous for saying, remember, about half the people at whom you are looking on a Sunday morning almost didn't make it to church. <laughs> and more than half of those sitting in the pews question whether it was worth the effort, <laughs> whether church could possibly be as life-improving as, say, another hour in bed on a cold February morning. Now, we weren't sure where he got his numbers, but we sensed truth in his characterization. So as pastors-to-be, we debated the reasons that people might set aside the Sunday paper, a decent cup of coffee, and a really good bagel to come to church. Was it meaningful community? Was it seeing old friends? Was it a chance to find new friends? Was it the arts? Was it to surround yourself with music that thrills the soul, to sing songs that have long been imprinted on your heart? Was it stimulating preaching, good adult education classes? Was it engaging children's programs? Was it a chance to serve, a, a chance to make meals for shut-ins, to to garden at a women's shelter, to deliver flowers to a hospital room? Was it the availability of mini donuts at coffee hour. In one of these debates, a friend of mine sheepishly said, it sounds like we're talking about bait. <laughs> what should we put on the hook so that we can reel people in? Another classmate responded, isn't that what Jesus tells us to do? Go fishing for people? Well, well yes, said the other friend, but, but what about integrity? What about the whole bait and switch thing? Another future pastor laughed. I was part of a parachurch group in college. The playbook we were given was simple. We were told to recruit a core group of cute women. Our coordinator told us if we got those people to show up for our events, everyone else would follow. We groaned. You groan, he responded, but it works. More than a few people have met their life partners in church. What's wrong with that? We paused. 
Well, well, nothing really is wrong with that as an outcome, but should it be the foundation for evangelism? Isn't church more than tinder with spiritual lip gloss? What exactly does Jesus have in mind when he grabs Simon Peter by the sleeve and says, from now on, you are going to catch people? To answer, let's take a look again at the text. According to Luke 5, people had gathered along the shore of Lake Gennesaret, another name for the Sea of Galilee, to listen to Jesus teach. They came hungry to hear the word of God, to listen as, as Jesus proclaimed good news, to, to hear someone place their lives in the context of a larger story, a, a sacred story, a, a love story. The word of God, Luke explains, drew folk to the beach. In fact, so many people gathered among the rocks and the sand that it became difficult to, to see the popular preacher. Luke, Luke describes the crowd pressing together, listening eagerly. But honestly, the gospel seems more interested in another group of people, people who spent their lives shoreside, a group who gathered alongside Galilee not for worship, but for work. Every day, these fellows pulled on oars, raised sails, cast nets, gathered fish, cleaned their catch and their equipment, and sold the fruit of the sea to individuals and merchants. On this particular morning, one of these fishermen Simon Peter curiously watches as a crowd gathers on shore. Peter was done fishing for the day. He'd spent all evening on the water, and it was not a good night. There were no fish to clean and sell, none. So the appearance of a teacher and an eager crowd proves a good diversion. It takes Peter's mind off his misfortune. He stops washing his nets. He, he watches. He listens. He lends a hand. Simon offers his boat to Jesus. He, he rows the teacher out a bit. Weird day, no fish, and now I've got a preacher in my boat. The Bible's funny. Sometimes it goes into great detail on what Jesus says to crowds and individuals. So, sometimes the good book presses record and, and it transcribes Christ's teaching word, word for word, but, but not always. Sometimes scripture pivots away from the preacher and starts filming the faces of the crowd. In today's text, Luke tells us nothing, zip, zero, about the content of Jesus' sermon. Instead, Luke studies Simon Peter. Eventually, the fisherman is just sitting there in his boat with his mouth hanging open, staring at Jesus. When Christ finishes teaching, he doesn't 
slip Peter a couple of coins and thank him for the effort. Instead, this itinerant preacher, this son of a carpenter, starts to offer fishing advice to a professional. Put out into the deep water, Jesus instructs. They sigh. Peter explains, it's not a good day for fish. Still, if you insist, and then Peter rose to where the water turns from blue to gray and then inky black. The men lower their nets and then fish. So many fish. This past week, two things in this story stood out to me. First, the disciples used nets. Now, nets, environmentalists will rightly tell you, are not the most ocean-friendly way to fish. Why? Because they scoop up everything, all sorts and species of fish and mammals, dolphins and turtles and whatever else lies in their path, coral from the seafloor, tires from artificial reefs, nets collect everything. This is not a bait your hook, cast your line, reel in some targeted species operation. This is not we're going after spotted trout today. This is not bait your hook with cute coeds. This is throw the net wide. All are welcome. All are invited. This is, to quote Reverend Werner's wonderful sermon from last week, all have a place at God's table. Now, I said two things about this story are instructive. The first was nets, the great catch-all metaphor of the Christian faith. God wants a relationship with everyone. What sort of people are we planning to catch? Throw your nets wide. But then Jesus gives Peter a second instruction. Oh, make sure that you toss them in the deep water. Nets and deep water. This, says Luke, is how Jesus goes fishing. To hop in a boat with Christ is to tie your life to the story he is weaving, to embrace the faith he's living is to paddle out to where the waters turn dark, where the questions turn real, to a place where your career, your livelihood, your path to tomorrow is at stake. Nets and deep water. What if Christians were to focus on the how and where fish are caught in this story? Instead of picturing ourselves reeling in individual fish for Jesus instead of winning souls. What if the point of this story, the vision that overwhelms Simon Peter and James and John, sons of Zebedee, what if the truth that has the disciples willing to leave their boats and follow Jesus is simply the fact that this fellow was willing to spend time with them in the deep water.
I've been the pastor of this church and before that a church in Atlanta for 20 years. Before that, for 10 years, I taught preaching at the Presbyterian Seminary in Austin, Texas. My job at the seminary involved listening to student sermons and providing constructive feedback. There are many ways that sermons can go wrong. I don't need to tell you that. Sometimes the feedback was mechanical. The preacher might speak too fast, or, or perhaps she dropped in volume at the end of every sentence and could not be heard. Or, or maybe he seemed inclined to yell through the entire sermon. <laughs> Sometimes the feedback was organizational. Points failed to connect, there was no logical coherence, no clear line for listeners to follow. Sometimes the feedback was biblical. I'm not sure that the passage you read has anything to do with the direction your sermon went. Sometimes there were illustrative issues. You may not realize this, but the story you told about the death of your cat actually distracted from the main point of the sermon. Sermon feedback was, and is, a dicey thing, an emotional thing. Other professors gave grades to students based on their ability to synthesize various moments in church history or to translate the Greek of the Gospel of Mark. But, but in preaching class, people were graded on their ability to talk coherently and winsomely about their faith. And this, of course, took us close to students' hearts. Preaching, especially preaching a first sermon, is a vulnerable moment. And as such, my classes had the dubious honor of being the occasions at seminary where the most tears were shed. Over the years, one line of professorial questioning produced more tears than any other. Sometimes, when a student had finished preaching, I would make a few encouraging comments, and then I would ask, do you believe what you just preached? Do you feel in your heart of hearts that what you just said is true? Now, you'd think that an answer to that question would be easy. Of course, I believe it. I just spent a whole week working on this sermon. Why would I write things down? Why would I say stuff that I don't believe? But again and again, this question initiated pinched foreheads, waterworks, and some truly fascinating conversations. One afternoon in a class that I was teaching on preaching from the Gospel of John, a young woman, a second career student, a whip-smart attorney who felt God's call, preached a sermon on the feeding of the 5,000, the loaves and the fishes. It was a passable effort. The sermon addressed the text. It was organized into three coherent points, but still the whole thing felt flat. There was no soul there. It was boring. And actually, the preacher seemed bored too. Not a good sign. I remarked on this 
Becky, I said, you don't seem engaged by your own sermon. Do you believe that what you're saying to us today is true? Immediately, she started to weep. <laughs> no, she said, I don't. I don't like this sermon at all. I wrote this sermon because, because I was afraid to preach the sermon that this text initially stirred up in me. You wanted to preach a different sermon, I asked. Yes, she nodded, but I was afraid. Afraid because that sermon went places that scared me. My, my first sermon seemed too personal, too close to my heart, too risky. Wait a minute, I asked. You actually wrote another sermon, a first sermon? Again, she nodded. Did you bring it with you? Another nod. Why, I asked, are we talking about a sermon that you don't even like? Could you preach the first sermon to us right now? Or are you up for that? And she did. Through a deluge of tears, she preached again. She preached a stunning sermon, a sermon that had the rest of us weeping. And, and we were not crying, as you might guess, tears of sympathy. They were tears of recognition, tears of gratitude, tears of joy. For this fledgling preacher honored us by avoiding, by leaving the shallows. She dared to row out to where the waters were deep, and we were grateful. And after she finished, another student in the class said, I want to go to your church. <laughs> Today's text reverses the logic undergirding a good bit of contemporary Christianity. Don't go places that frighten people. Keep your message simple and broad-based. Avoid difficult topics. What if that isn't faith? What if that isn't faith at all? In today's text, Jesus invites people to fish alongside him in places where the water turns black. What if faith starts with a courageous step, a step away from the shore, a willingness to entrust ourselves to a teacher who points us, who calls us to the depths, who insists on discussing the heart's most pressing questions and the world's most complicated issues with us? My friends, if the things that we really deep down want to talk about don't scare God, maybe they shouldn't scare us either. Maybe it's time we all started preaching the sermons we really want to preach, owning the risky and perfect hopes that tether us to Jesus and make us want to follow him into all sorts of beautiful, scary, grace-filled places. My friends, God is waiting for us in the deep waters, throwing the net wide. Take courage in this news. Take heart. And now go out into the world holding fast to what is good, do not return evil for evil, 
strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, honor all people, love and serve the Lord. Amen.